0: Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics.
1: Oh, sorry, hello. Um, I didn't get up at 4.30 for
2: once. Early morning, Dominic Cummings morning. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: a new (laughs)
3: catchphrase. I'm a little jet-lagged and addled, but otherwise fine.
0: We are eight days, nine days out from Donald Trump becoming president of the United States, I think, Everyone is aware of that. Looking around the table here, I just had to say those words and everyone looked very aware of that.
3: Oh my (laughs) God. So
0: we're not going to talk about that this week. We will be talking about it next week and every week till the end of time. But this week we're going to talk about something a little more parochial, the British Labour Party. And specifically, we'll start, but we won't get bogged down with because it's all over the newspapers, Jeremy Corbyn's relaunch yesterday, in which he gave a series of interviews across the mainstream media, but tried to get beyond the mainstream media, which in itself is a slightly odd tactic, in which he spoke about Europe, tried to sketch out what his position is on Brexit, but also, and it sounds like it was semi-unplanned, made some rash statements about what he would do to income inequality, starting with his claim on the Today programme that he would set a cap, an upper limit to what people could earn by way of salary, which he then drifted away from And then back to started talking about ratios within companies, whether the person at the top should earn 20 times more or less than the person at the bottom and so on. And then he also said some things about free movement to people. So we're going to start with that. But then I want to talk more broadly about the Labour Party, because it's not all about Corbyn. Is it really stuck? Because the other thing that we've all had a look at and got a lot of press last week, I think a certain amount, was a report from the Fabian Society About Labour, which more or less said, can't win, can't die, basically. A zombie party. And partly that's because of the British electoral system. And I'd like to talk a bit about that too, first past the post. Does it sort of keep zombie parties alive, or does it occasionally just kill them in a brutal way? But let's start with Corbyn's policy statements, Fimba, I'll start with you. You always want to talk about policy on this (laughs) podcast, and you always say, we don't talk enough about policy. policy. So was, was it, as Danny Blanchard, one of his advisors, said within, not minutes, but hours of hearing this, idiotic, to talk about capping how much people can earn?
1: So the problem here is, are we having a policy conversation, a process conversation, or an attempt for... Corbyn, as people have commented, to take on some of the aspects of Trump and do signalling. So if you talk about it as a policy, it's probably unworkable in the extreme. Most of the compensation doesn't come from wages, it doesn't come from that kind of income, it comes from investments, it comes from stock options, it comes from other things. So saying we're going to have a maximum limit on how much you can earn doesn't actually address the inequality directly. It just is one aspect of many forms of income for incredibly wealthy people.
0: So is it unworkable in the we'll build a wall and Mexico will pay for it, unworkable. No, I
1: mean, there is a way in which you could write a law to do this, and there would be a whole lot of trouble for HMRC and an explosion in the economy and a whole bunch of other things. So it's not like the wall in that sense. But in terms of actually policy that you'd put down on paper and say, if you want to talk about three or four alternatives, this would be the alternative that would score very badly. The drift of the policy then towards ratios is much more interesting because it does signal and it also is potentially workable. There are famous examples of companies which have taken on the ratio. The most famous in the American sense is Ben & Jerry's. Their ice cream is fantastic. They no longer own the company. But when they started, they said, we will maintain a value, an ethic, that we can't earn more than five times what the lowest paid worker in this company earns. Then it stretches to seven to one over time. And then it stretches out to 12 to one and then they got bought out and now you don't know. However, for that moment in time, it was brilliant signalling for the company and it, it they were still incredibly successful.
0: But it was a choice by the company. It was not imposed on the company in law. So can you, Helen, can you impose these things through law?
2: I think that it's incredibly difficult to do so. I think that what's got potential mileage in it, if it had been handled differently, is to make a political issue out of executive pay. I mean, it's quite interesting that you can find people on the right who think that very much the same thing as Corbyn in terms of this policy area. What you can't do is what Corbyn did yesterday is is to spend the morning, or the day before, I should say, briefing that he's going to signal something on the European Union and then divert off into this policy area. That makes no sense whatsoever.
0: And just to pick up on Finbar's point, because this is how it's been reported, it was an attempt to sort of tap into Trump populism that to use what's become the cliche, don't take him literally, take him seriously. So he's not literally going to cap income, but he's signalling very strongly that this is now on the agenda of a main political party. To me, it didn't sound like Trump at all, because Trump does it with a completely different kind of political skill set. But anyway, it
2: it is. And also, I mean, Trump's whole language is based on hyperbole. That's how he talks. You can understand why people say about him that you can't take what he says literally, because I don't think he thinks in literal terms at all but jeremy corbyn really does think in literal terms that's he's based an entire political career on that he can't suddenly leap into the i'll just say some words and people can think that what i'm saying is what they're feeling it just doesn't work when you're jeremy corbyn
3: yeah i think that's right i mean rhetorically he's a very different kind of politician but i do think he's trying to park his tanks on a similar populist lawn um and that i think is what that That famous populist lawn yeah who gave that quote to I think it was Politico that he's sort of trying to do something Trumpian. That's where that's coming in. But there's a different way in which that wage policy, either as a cap or as a ratio, is unworkable, which is that the British business sector is almost entirely composed of multinational companies, some of which are British companies that have subsidiaries overseas, but many of which are actually subsidiaries of foreign companies. You can't apply this policy to the global entity because the global entity doesn't exist as a single entity and isn't headquartered here. And if you do apply it only to the British operations of some company, you could very quickly see a situation in which companies just decide what they're going to do is move the payment of the executives into some division that's somewhere else. And then all of a sudden, exactly what are you regulating the ratio of? And lots of left criticism, I think, of business and its role in social and economic inequality doesn't take into account the way in which businesses operate internationally and what that means for how much governments are actually able or actually not very able to do in terms of regulating them.
4: I, mean, I think we shouldn't underestimate the appeal that putting this on, on the table can have. Many people are worried about um, these very high levels of pay. And there are some examples of this being a strategy to win elections. And I remember in 2012 in France, the French uh, presidential candidate then of the Socialist Party, Francois Hollande, made this very famous entirely off-the-hoof policy. Um, even his main economics advisor had never heard of this idea, which was to tax at 75% earnings over, I think it was, a million euros. Now, this chimed with a sentiment which he was you know, really picking up on, which was anti-finance. And to be honest, that was maybe the decisive factor in that election. We should remember he then slowly abandoned that policy because it was unworkable.
0: To me, I always think these arguments start to go wrong when it becomes about footballers, because it's very easy when you're presenting these things to get drawn into a question about whether Wayne Rooney earns too much, which he clearly does. But I think there's quite a lot of evidence people aren't that fussed actually about how much footballers earn, what they mind about is the bankers. But when you get drawn into this discussion, he ends up it becomes an argument about Arsene Wenger. I think that's a disaster. Anyway, let's quickly move on to the other one, uh, which is the free movement of people. So I'll tell you what I think Corbyn was saying. And I think people said it was all messy and incoherent, but I think it, there was a clear line there, which is he's fine with Britain leaving the European Union. Maybe that was his personal preference, but anyway, he's certainly reconciled to it. And he thinks that the opportunity for Britain outside the European Union is for a Labour government to then enact the kinds of things that were happening when Britain was in the European Union, like the free movement of people. But it'll work now. Because it will be the choice of the British people and it will be emancipated from all the things about the European Union that they hate, including the fact it's a kind of banker's compact to exploit them. So, what you get is European Union style immigration outside the European Union, freely chosen by the British people. And I think it's not incoherent, but it's utopian. I mean, it just seems to me like it's an incredibly wishful. During the day, I don't think he. I'm getting some puzzled looks. I don't think he moved from that. He just really struggled to make it sound like a convincing political position.
2: I must admit, that's not the way that I interpreted what he was saying. It doesn't mean that I'm at all correct. I mean, and I'm not
0: sure I'm correct either. I was just trying to kind of...
2: Partly because it seems to me that actually ironically, given his sort of heritage in the Tony Ben part of the Labour Party, Corbyn's never really seemed very interested in arguments about democracy and the European Union I'd be surprised if he actually used that word, particularly when he was talking about freedom of movement yesterday. It seemed to me... Go on. OK, so
0: and I, what I'm saying, it's not sort of the British people empowered, it's just the British people could then elect a Labour government who could then just do this, sort of sell it to them as their oh, he choice. Definitely wants,
2: he definitely got some idea that there are things that, that a Labour government could do that are possible now that wouldn't have been possible if Britain stayed in the European Union. But I understood him on freedom of movement to be saying, look, I don't really want to make this a matter of absolute principle, but basically faced with a choice between is a single European market more important or is freedom of movement more important? Labour under my leadership is going to choose a single European market. Now, I think there's a tension there because I think it's in quite direct contradiction with the aims that he has for a Labour government. I know it's kind of preposterous to think that he's going to ever lead this Labour government, but let's just let's just go with that because the single European market rules would get in the way of any number of things that he um, wanted to do. But I think he was trying to signal that he actually he wasn't really giving any ground on freedom of movement, even though he was acknowledging that he's not going to talk about it in absolutist terms.
0: But the thing he kept coming back to was currently... The problem is it's exploitative. Mm -hmm. So the arrangement that we have now is that people come into this country, they undercut wages, they are exploited, British workers are exploited. So if you take us out of the EU and you you have the power to address the exploitation, and then you can sort of bring that system back in again, but the non-exploitative version, which to me why it sounded coherent but utopian.
4: The point is that the criticisms he was making about the way the freedom of movement works the the problems of exploitation those are ones which in principle the uk government could resolve or address without having to leave the european union i think the point that he was making which i have to say was identical to my position is that if you have a, an exit from the eu there are a number of laws which could stay exactly the same such as the laws on on free movement but they would no longer be laws that were derived from agreements in Brussels. There would be laws passed by the UK government because that's what the government was elected on. And that could be to have pretty open borders in the way that we have now. So it is politically utopian, I think. But I think Corbyn's message was, you know, if you, if you carry that to the country and win an election on it, then that's a big difference.
0: And that makes it sound a bit like the Tory position on the European Convention of Human Rights. We could have the same convention, but if we came out, it could be our convention. We, we've chosen these rights.
1: That's right. I was hearing a moment where he wanted his cake and to have, to have it and to eat it because what he was saying was there is this tension between access to the single market and freedom of movement and we're going to fine tune depending on how things go well if it works that way we'll stay with free movement if it doesn't work we'll go away from free movement it isn't a position it's basically saying we'll do what's expedient to try and grow the economy well fantastic that's what you're supposed to do as the government well done it, it is no position at all
4: no, I think the, the, the reason why there's such a problem with what Angela Merkel calls cherry picking is that there's the idea that you would want to limit access by EU migrants to the British labour market. Now, if Corbyn's position is that you don't want to limit it, you want to open it, maintain it as open as possible, then you don't have the incompatibility. You can be outside of the single market, but you can honour many of its rules but that's and regulations. Not what he
1: said. He said... In a straight up fight, I'll choose the single market. Fine. But then he said, it's not a point of principle. I'm not ruling it out either way. He's putting himself right on the edge of going either way. He didn't clearly say anything that was a policy. What he said is, we'll make this decision later. So to say that he's cherry picking, he's not. To say that he's taking a position, he's not. It's, to me absolutely the worst muddle of trying to signal in one direction and trying to garner some version of a policy position. Nothing was in there that was clear.
0: We're not going to do this Trump comparison. It doesn't really stand up. But just more broadly, if this is an attempt to be that kind of populist politician, or be a bit more. I think I was most struck by just watching him yesterday, listening to him, is that he wants to be in a place where he's comfortable. He doesn't like being outside of his political comfort zone. And that is the opposite of a lot of these. They don't care about how comfortable they feel. They they see an opportunity and they take it. And he just does not seem to be the kind of politician who would want to take a big leap one way or the other because a gap opens up. It was very, very quickly, very defensive, protecting his comfort zone.
2: Also, as well, he can't possibly be a populist politician and end up the day with the position that he ended up with of saying that he's completely comfortable with the level of immigration into Britain at the moment. I mean, that is so far from being populist that, that if this is supposed to be left-wing populism, it's just a non-starter.
3: I think that's true. Um, it's But I but this is where I think the way that these things are actually read and consumed by the vast majority of voters sort of matter. Because I think in the environment that we're in right now here, where the referendum campaign has been fought almost exclusively on the issue of migration, whether or not that's the most important issue vis-a-vis sort of Britain's relationship to Europe, And in the wake of that, you know, both in policy terms and I think in sort of human terms, the immigrants in the UK are facing extraordinary levels of pressure and discrimination. Anything other than a full-throated defense of migration is read as Labour is backing down from its support for immigration. And that is the way that it was read yesterday. So I don't know that it kind of matters if there's some nuance in the position, because I think the way that that is going to be received almost everywhere um, is as a populist move that Labour is backing down. From its position on migration, and to give a
0: totally non-representative Cambridge bubble sample at the dinner party I was at last night, the people there were sort of rolling their eyes between their head and the oh, Jeremy's moved to the right, Jeremy's moved to the right, and well, they, it just uh, yeah, I well, know. They should it's, have
2: seen then the BBC News headline by the end of the day. Yeah, I think that would have. I mean, I don't think it's 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 a mess in this sense. Is is that he's under significant pressure from members of his shadow cabinet and significant people in the low party who aren't in the shadow cabinet to move on this issue. And I think he was showing yesterday that he's not really willing to do it.
0: Yeah, and that's his comfort. I mean, so maybe it's a kind of steeliness and sincerity, but to me it also has that kind of, this is the space I've always been in and you're not pulling me out of it. You're just not.
4: I I think Jeremy Corbyn's comfort zone is to be an open borders Brexiteer. Now, he didn't bite the bullet in the referendum. He's not really bitten the bullet now. And I think Finbar is right. It comes out as very confused. But coming through in some way is I think that position and he is saying to the people saying you've got to you know you've got to be tough on on immigration he's saying no I think he is resisting
0: okay so let's take this beyond Corbyn and the party itself so regardless of who's leading it for now it's in a really tough spot but then so are parties of the left all over the the world, the democratic world. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a second too. But in the British context, there is this distinctive feature. And this is what was picked up in the Fabian report, which is first past the post systems, have lots of curious effects. And in Britain, you see this England versus Scotland. So the effect in Scotland for Labour is wipeout. Although I think what's interesting about Scotland is it's wipeout the third vote in a sequence of votes. So first you have the votes in the Scottish parliamentary elections, not under a first-past-the-post, but under a hybrid system where Labour's vote share falls and it falls back from being the main party to one of the opposition parties. Then you have the referendum. Then you get wiped out in the general election. But in England, Labour's vote could probably fall to the low 20s and Labour would still, in just certain parts of the country, be wiped out across the map but then have these pockets, particularly in the north, in metropolitan areas, could keep 150 seats. So it would still be the party of opposition. So there's this sort of question about, is it a zombie party here? Is it actually being propped up by the electoral system, given its current levels of support? And how hard it is to see Labour on its own ever, I think, forming a government again. Or actually, does the first-past-the-post system allow it to keep going until it gets its act together and it can come back as parties under these systems? They hardly ever do die. I mean, they die about once every 100 years. It's that cliche, the strange death of liberal England and people have been waiting for the strange and it never happens. Our friend on this podcast, Jeremy Cliff, who writes the budget column in The Economist, wrote a column about the strange death of strange deaths of strange <laughs> deaths, i.e. <laughs> <laughs> finally another one's going to die. Does anyone think the Labour Party's going to die? That was a no. long way of asking that question. That's no, a short answer. It's not, <laughs> it's not,
1: it's not going to die. Um, the question really is, what happens after Corbyn? And is there a way in which the Labour Party can manage to heal some of the rifts that it's generated between the base of the Labour Party, the parliamentary Labour Party? Can it provide some coherence to an electorate? Does it want to provide itself a route to tapping into the current mode of populism? Or does that have we reached some sort of high watermark for that sort of populism? Do we think that 2016, 2017 was the high watermark here
0: in Europe and in America and it's going to recede in some way? But you say if, if, if. Oh, yeah. But if it doesn't do these things, why won't it die? I,
2: guess, uh, I don't think it's out of the question that it dies, but I think a lot of that's got to do with how well Theresa May fares as a leader of the Conservative Party and whether she can really succeed in getting the Conservatives back to a position which sort of they occupied until late Margaret Thatcher's time of taking about a third of the working class vote. Because you know what Cameron essentially did was a culmination of a set of things. But Cameron kind of finished it off in terms of the Conservatives being able to attract significant amounts of working class vote. He kind of wanted to disavow, if you like, working class Toryism. Um, so if the Conservatives can succeed at attracting significant working class vote again, and the Liberal Democrats can succeed at taking Remain Labour voters away then I think you have to accept the possibility that even under a first past the post system Labour can become a at the very least a marginal party. And
0: with UKIP snapping away at the heels of the the, the Tory attempt to pull away working class votes I mean there is a sort of three-way way of doing politics depends on there being an opposition, but not just an opposition, a kind of alternative government. And in a sense, general elections have always meant to be a choice. You've got the government, and you've got the alternative government. I think most people agree at the moment, Labour is not a plausible alternative government. So there are two possibilities here, one of which is some other party is the alternative government, but that also isn't on the table. The Lib Dems is not an alternative government. Or you have the government, and then you have a whole range of possible coalitions, But the evidence of the last general election is under first past the post, people are really uncomfortable with the coalition option because they have no idea what the possible coalitions are and they can be scared into the thought of an SNP. So that's a real problem for Labour, right? They're not the alternative government. There isn't another alternative government. And coalition politics is a hard sell in first past the post.
4: I mean, I I do think the zombie party description is reasonably apt. I think the Labour Party is in a situation where it still exists as a party institutionally, um, and parties, you know, are institutions. And And it has
0: the largest membership of any political party in Europe? Well,
4: that's right, but I think that's a, a new development where the composition of that membership and the support that it provides to the leadership fits very uneasily with... Traditional Labour Party-supporting constituencies across the country. And so it's out of sync. So in that way, the, the membership has taken hold of the party in quite a dramatic way, which is one of the problems, I think, today. But I think it's it's very difficult to imagine the, the disappearance of the party. I think what's more likely is struggles at the top, changes in direction, coups, counter-coups, and some different composition of the party going forward. But we're not in a situation, I think, in the UK where you could easily imagine the disappearance. I mean, even in some countries where parties have disappeared, think of the PASOC, you know, party in Greece, they haven't actually disappeared. At the local level, PASOK is still a pretty powerful you know, institution. It still has the local sales. That's what, how parties work. So I, I think that zombie for the time being, but I think it'll then be taken hold again by something else or somebody else.
2: I think the issue though goes beyond the -the first-past-the-post system and it goes to the question of the fact that the UK is a multinational state and the problems of the constitutional governance of the UK and particularly the constitutional governance of England in the devolution settlement because for Labour's the problem isn't just constructing a coalition that's going to have to involve the SNP it's constructing a coalition that's going to have to involve the SNP under political conditions in which the issues of governance of England are not really sorted out And that is going to mean that they're always going to be vulnerable to the attack that was made upon them in the last general election. Until that issue is sorted, I don't think that Labour can make a coalition with the SNP. If it cannot make a coalition with the SNP, it has got no prospect of getting back into government, even under a coalition form.
0: So we are in this weird situation where there isn't an alternative government. So if this government fails, which it could easily do... What happens? Does it just get replaced, which is, again, the way the British system is set up, it's fine. It just gets replaced by another government of the same party.
1: There's the option that there is enough leakage out of the Conservatives that you have to form another coalition. And the Lib Dems are yet again that little party that, you know, the little party that could and gets back into coalition. Is that something that people would want? we don't know. And the interpretation of what people want in their vote and whether they want coalitions and stuff, I find that language really troubling because people vote for an MP, they may vote for a party. But for me, I still question the decision making within the Conservative Party about whether or not they should hold an early election or not. Because for me, there still is an opportunity to break the Labour Party forever and to do exactly what you're saying, which is essentially to lock in conservative majorities as far as the eye can see
0: but in a way why would the conservative party not rather have the current rather than break the labor party because if you really break it if you take the zombie and you i don't know how you kill zombies there's i know there's a whole literature on this but you bludgeon it to death yeah. chop its head off and then burn its spine or whatever then something will take its place much better to have as chris described the the thing just sort of limping on
1: except for the fact that labor are as you said the party who have significant assets and major membership and if they get their act together, they can resurrect, they can come back from the dead.
0: Yeah, we've really dragged that metaphor to death. Let's, um, okay, let's then broaden it out because how different is this predicament from what's going on in the rest of Europe? And I just want to ask one more Corbyn question. I want to ask this to Chris because he does make a lot himself of. An idea of European socialism or kind of solidarity among parties of the left across Europe. And he's often, in a way that sounds very jarring in the House of Commons, but is speaking to some constituency, he talks about his meetings with fellow European socialist leaders, and how they recognise they have a shared project, which is to take Europe in a particular direction, and so on. Does that play in Europe at all? I mean, what is the European left's view of Corbyn?
4: Well, I think what's interesting is that Corbyn is somebody who's running a party, in other European left-wing parties, centre-left parties, you have not Corbyn-like figures. You have those figures on the margins of a party who may like to take it over. So somebody like Arnaud de Montebourg in, uh, in France. Um, but what you have running those parties are centre-left politicians who are failing. Um, and so there is, there is no doubt that the problems of the Labour Party, irrespective of, of its leader, the problems of the Labour Party as a whole, are mirrored in places like Italy, France, Spain, people like Pedro Sanchez in Spain, Matteo Renzi, all these reformists, these centre-left reformists, are perceived, I think, to have gone much too much to the right, have embraced the market too much, have been unable to go in the other direction, and are now either out of power or in you know, serious, serious trouble. Um, and the situation in France is as existential for the French Socialist Party as it is for the British Labour Party at the moment. I would say even more so. I mean, it's quite plausible. There are a lot of ifs in this scenario, but it is plausible that in the second round of the presidential election, you have a a traditional right-wing figure, François Fillon, and then you have somebody who is, in France, they describe him as a political virgin, Emmanuel Macron, who was a minister in a socialist government, but left and is now running as an independent with his own movement, it's not even a party, um, getting into the second round of that election. Is there
0: a political analogy for Macron? That Who would be the British equivalent of someone who broke away? The defining feature
4: of Macron is that he describes himself as neither left nor right. He says very clearly, I'm not a socialist. So he's... If you like, uh, I mean, he's never been elected. He's not a traditional politician at all. Um, he's very young. Um, it would be somebody who, sort of, a David Miliband figure, you know. What before,
2: about, what about Bloomberg? Was it in comparison?
4: He doesn't have the sort of the weight and the authority and the experience of an older person who's held some serious office, maybe not a political office. So no, in some ways, so it's as if
0: Miliband, when he David Miliband, when he had his opportunity to challenge Gordon Brown, had resigned from the government and said, I'm actually quitting the party altogether, and I'm going to now be an independent figure who brokers between... I mean, that, I mean, it's impossible to imagine him doing it, but that would be the...
4: But that, that reveals the the achievement of Macron, is to bring people towards him, having literally put the party at a distance from himself. He has no support of any party whatsoever.
1: Uh, in the current sense, it actually would be more like Keir Starmer now leaving the party and challenging, because Miliband had too much history in the party. Starmer as a new MP, etc., he'd be about the right... Framing, as it were, with external
0: experience. And so, Kier, if you're listening, have a think. But of course, and I don't want to harp on this, I say this quite a lot, but political systems matter. You can't do it if you're not in a presidential system. So, if Keir Starmer does that, he is dead. I mean, he's just, he's not a zombie politician. There's, there's nowhere to go. You, David Miliband couldn't have done it. He can't say, right. I'm running as an independent for the post of Prime Minister.
4: So there are political rules, if you like, that make it possible in France. This is a presidential election. The idea of the president as somehow being outside of politics has, has a long tradition. Macron is tapping into that, there's no doubt. But I think the striking thing for the French Socialist Party is that it's in a position where the main figures in opposition to the right are Mélenchon on the far left, who's not a, uh, running for the socialist you know, primary, and Macron, who's not running the French
0: sorry if I pronounce that name wrong, how close is he to Corbyn in terms of political profile and persona? So I think Jean-Luc Mélenchon is very French obviously which Corbyn isn't which Corbyn
4: isn't but um, the similarities are quite striking Mélenchon's been around for a long time he's a, a real old timer in, in political terms ideologically they have a lot of affinities with one another there are you know interesting differences between them but I think you know Corbyn and Mélenchon are, could see eye to eye on a lot of issues
3: That you know, Parti Socialiste is different in that it's one of the few major center left parties that didn't go through a formal period of moving to the center in a very public way in the 90s. It had figures who were doing that, Strauss-Kahn and that sort of circle around him, but there was never like a French third way that took control of the party in the way that happened in Germany, in the way that happened here, in the way that happened in the States. So the, the rupture that Corbyn represents, it's hard to imagine something like that. Whereas the PS has just sort of hovered in this territory between an old 20th century socialism that doesn't work anymore. And, you know, whatever third way movement that was mooted in the 90s that they never moved towards.
2: Well, I think that's because, though, that the French socialists had got there before the third way ever got there, so to speak. And that is just because well, as soon as Mitterrand abandoned his sort of pseudo-Keynesian social democratic economic policy, is the French um, socialists in government practiced economic orthodoxy, not sort of Thatcher economic orthodoxy, but hardcore German orthodoxy in which there was no space for having a debate about macroeconomic policy. The French socialists have been bound by that commitment ever
4: since. But but the problem is that there was never a language for it. So the party transitioned, if you like, towards the market under its president Francois Mitterrand, but there was never a new socialist party sort of idea that was sold to people so you had this massive mismatch between what it did as a party and its policies and the kind of language it used that still sounded very old-fashioned and that's come apart
0: and and is it then possible to pull together something because these are such different stories the Labour Party story the French story the Italian story different political systems different histories different personalities and yet they're all look like they're walking to this possible cliff face that just drops and the, the Democratic Party, possibly in the United States as well? I mean, maybe not. But there's, some, there's something going on beyond political systems and personalities and histories that is squeezing the centre left.
2: Well, I think what, what is that? thing? I think the thing that is going on in Europe is the EU. If you go back to the reasons why Mitterrand did his U-turn in, in March 1983, um, which basically disbanded the radical agenda which he'd come to Power with it's all about France's membership of the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, and there's a road that gets from that moment to France embracing monetary union, and there's a road that gets from that moment to the fact that pretty much every centre-left government that comes into power in Europe after that disavows radical Keynesianism, if we, if we if we can call it that, or macroeconomic expansion, and at the same time, is is that these parties have then internalised an acceptance of that way of doing politics that involved an embrace of the European community as it then was and what became the European Union after Maastricht. And I think they've all floundered around because they did not keep a space open for Euroscepticism within the left.
0: So does does that mean, therefore, that the North American story is completely different? Because We're going to come on to Canada in a second, because there is a possibility that Canada is the real exception here. But, Maha, the, the Democrats in the States, so they didn't have to decide whether or not to join the exchange rate mechanism, but they are, they're in a bad place.
3: An incredibly bad place and not and not one that comes just because of this election. I mean, one of the kind of dirty secrets of the Obama era is although the Democrats held the White House and for part of that time held Congress, it's been a terrible period for the party at the state level, at the local level, it's been getting decimated now for over a decade. Um, but I, and I do think that the causes of that are similar in the sense that Part of, I think, this sort of malaise of left-leaning parties is about the failure to figure out how you actually do left-wing economic policy under conditions of globalization where the level of control that you actually have over economic decision-making is quite limited. And in Europe, the, you know, the thing that triggered that realization has been sort of policy around Europe. But in North America, a lot of that is triggered by NAFTA. And by the entrance of the U.S. and Canada into this arrangement with Mexico that constrains what we then feel like we're able to do. And I think that becomes the node around which a lot of these debates are taking place. But then these debates are actually about much wider questions of how do you regulate business? How do you how do you regulate migration? What kind of authority do you actually have to make those types of decisions? So that I do think is very similar. And where electorally, that becomes a problem. And this we haven't really talked about. And I would be curious, actually, to hear from Chris about how this works in some of the continental European democracies where I don't know so much. But the split that takes place for a lot of these center left parties between the urban metropolitan parts of their coalition that are actually fairly comfortable, both sort of in a cultural way, but also economically are doing quite well out of the transition that's taking place. And You know, sort of voters, either in rural areas or in smaller cities that are deindustrializing for whom this has been both culturally and economically completely devastating Um, and the failure to be able to kind of figure out how you keep those coalitions together in the transformation that's taking place. That, to me, feels very familiar. Um, from the American context?
4: There are a lot of echoes in the European context. The the split is devastating for the French Socialist Party. It is predominantly an urban middle-class party dominated by you know, Paris-based elites. Um, it has very little to say to some of its electorate, which is around the country and has now, in many respects, turned away from the French Socialist Party. The German SPD is split as well. You have one half is much more favourable to a more open uh, immigration policy. The other half is much more sympathetic to Merkel's U-turn on, on refugees and a much more hardline policy, so the party is split. We know very well that the Labour Party faces exactly this predicament. The difference between the urban, sort of capital-based, educated elites, I suppose, and voters in other parts of the country is a very common feature for a lot of the centre-left parties in Europe. And there's no idea, I think, about how to bridge that gap. But I would say, I think, I'm not sure I quite agree with Helen about the role of Europe. I think there's a there's a problem of ideas here. You know, the only policy that Corbyn's put on the table, we've now said, doesn't seem to be workable. Now, the left, I think, has to be responding to how to deal with you know problems of inequality with with ideas that work. And it doesn't really have much. And I think it is true that certainly centre-left European parties have not dared question this straitjacket that comes from being a member of the European Union. Um, and a lot of right-wing populist parties have. They said, well, these are rules that we can change or we tear them up. Now, the left hasn't dared yet challenge ever closer union. When it does, I think, because um, I think it must,
1: then things will, will change. And the dearth of ideas is going to continue and it's going to get harder. And what The moment in Trump saying reshoring, bring back American manufacturing and bring back manufacturing jobs, that isn't possible under modern economic conditions. And so one of the clear signals I think we're going to get out of the next two to four years in the US is fine. He won that election with that populist pivot, but it's going to be shown to not be possible. So there is a huge challenge to the left to, as you say, generate new ideas, but generate new ideas under even harder economic conditions.
0: So can I finish with one question, which is the Canada question, because Canada is the exception here. So you've got a managerial center left party. NAFTA, as you said, it's Canada as well as the US and Mexico. Okay, they have a charismatic, sexy guy at the helm. So maybe that does make some difference. And timing matters a lot. You know, Electoral timing makes a huge difference when in these various cycles, you ask the people what they think. is there any evidence that that Canada shows how you can still do this? Or is Canada all about not being America?
3: They got lucky a little bit in the sense that they were running against an incumbent conservative government that had made a lot of mistakes that had been in power a very long time, was incredibly unpopular. You know, Harper was an easy target, right? So that is, I think, part of it. And then Canada has a system in which there are three major parties. There was a party you know, to the liberals left that was in really bad shape. And that probably also helped. I mean, there must be something to be looked at in terms of the way the policies were messaged, because, you know, it's not like they won on... Other issues, They won explicitly on the issues that have been so difficult for left-wing parties elsewhere in the developed world, that they were campaigning as a top-line pledge, not on anything to do with, you know, sort of constraining government spending deficits, but on we will increase the deficit we are borrowing to invest in growth um, as a top-line economic policy. And they were able to sell that. And that, I think, you know, that's what other parties need to be autopsying is the fact that they were actually able to sell that explicitly and win on it and sell it by having... A leadership team that was not heavily composed. Actually, I mean, it's a managerial party, but it was not composed in a big way of career politicians. Even, I mean, even Trudeau has done a whole bunch of other stuff, um, like being before, the right. son of the four. yeah, no. Know, know. But it was acting. It was doing all. It was lecturing. It was doing all kinds of other stuff. Taking it was relatively his shirt recently, off. entering into politics. There were former journalists. There were former business people. Um, so it was campaigning as a as a party of expertise that wants to borrow more of your money and spend more of it, um, and that worked. So I think there's much to be learned about exactly why that is. And it's still kind of mysterious to me that they were able to do it.
2: I think there's a fundamental difference, though, is Canada doesn't have two things. Canada doesn't have a border with Mexico, which is the case with the United States. It doesn't have the same issue of politicised illegal immigration. It doesn't have freedom of movement with 27 other countries like every member of the EU state does. And that means that certain things that the centre-left has to grapple with in the United States and, and particularly in the European Union just doesn't have to happen in Canada.
0: Canada's the lucky country. I think that's probably a good note on which to end. Um, And we will be coming back from next week to talk about Donald Trump. We'll be looking ahead to a Trump presidency next week. And then on Friday, on Inauguration Day, we're doing a Facebook Live event from King's College, Cambridge, a somewhat elite institution, but a good place, I think, with some students and others to be looking at what Trump says. I don't know. Does anyone know who's writing his speech? Lots of head shaking. It must be weird to be writing a speech because he's presumably not going to deliver it as written. Maybe he is. Anyway, we'll hear what he has to say we'll, in real time and we'll talk about it. And then the following week, we've got Jill Lepore from The New Yorker, one of the most interesting writers about American politics and the history of the Tea Party. And she'll be coming on and we'll be talking to her about what she thinks Trump means for America, for the world, for democracy. Do please join us for that. Do follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore let us have your questions. Let us know what you think. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. <laughs> Great.
3: So in terms of what we're actually
0: doing. <laughs> no, you know, have, have I ever you it now? we no. <laughs> no, no, I don't really do we yeah, yeah. know. <laughs> <No>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we don't normally do this. What Damn, sorry. sorry? only very. Her in here. <laughs> that's, that's that's know, Scottish. You always want to talk about policy. Yeah. I do. I do want to talk uh, about policy. <laughs> <it to> <laughs> okay. okay,
2: three two
0: one here. Yeah.